verses online, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 23 and then a little portion of 24. You know, every week our sermons are a little different, which is Genesis is awesome. It's, it's a long book of the Bible, but um, different weeks have different flavors. You know, Pastor Dave was here last week and he talked about, you know, Abraham's faith was finally getting back to where it should be. He was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. This week will be a little different. It'll be in some ways a little more like a history lesson, and you'll see what I mean as we talk about it, but it'll be good. I think we'll get some good points out of it. We're going to do some of the backstory, fill in some of the blanks, connect some stories we're all familiar with, things like that. And our title even is a little interesting. If you haven't seen the title yet, our title is Plus One Equals Minus Two. Plus One Equals Minus Two. And by the way, I don't like math, but... That's the title. I'm not going to tell you what it means yet. You'll have to figure it out, but hang in there. And it might take me a while to get there, by the way, but I will clearly tell you why it's plus one minus two at the end. But let's turn to chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse one. We're going to talk about Sarah, one of the famous ladies in the Bible. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. And did you know, I, I, can't, I think I read this, but I had forgotten it. Sarah is the only woman in the whole Bible whose age at her death. Other ladies are mentioned by their age. Her death is the only one that's mentioned as a number, which kind of tells us she's important. She's known as one of the matriarchs, and we'll talk a little more about matriarchs in a few minutes. She's the father, anyway, of the the Jews in, in some ways. And that promise of Isaac is, I think, why her name is sort of special. But in verse 2, she dies. So let me just get there. Verse 2 says, she died at Kiriath Arba, and that is Hebron. Some of your translations will have that in parentheses because that's the name it's more known by. In the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Well, the name Kiriath Arba, or Hebron, it occurs 10 times in the Bible, and it's first mentioned here in the verse I just read, Genesis 23:2. And it's known, first off, as the place where Sarah died. And if you're wondering where it is historically, I will have a map much later tonight, and we'll kind of look at it maybe together. But it's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's in an open valley in what they would have called the hill country. And it's about roughly 3,000 feet above sea level. But a lot of famous stuff happened there, and I'll give us a list here in a few minutes, but a couple of things you already know. It's where Abraham and Sarah end up being buried, where Abraham's son Isaac eventually gets buried. He's going to die much later in our, our chapters, over in chapter 35. Then years later after that, his son Jacob gets buried there. And then finally... When Israel, you know, we know the story, I'm not telling you something you don't already know, when they finally enter the promised land, we'll learn a little bit more about Kiriath Arba, and we'll learn who founded Arba, it's a guy named Arba, that's why it's Kiriath Arba, and he is the father of the Anakim, and if you know anything about the Anakim, they're the giants, remember when the Israelites were first coming in and nobody wanted to enter because there's giants there, they make us look like grasshoppers. But Caleb didn't say that. We'll talk about Caleb in a second. So all this happened at this town called Kiriath Arba. Now, speaking of Caleb, he never forgot that whole story where they were promised to go in, take possession, but most of the people, except for two of them, didn't want to do that. They didn't really trust God's promises. 
But later, Caleb doesn't seem like he ever gave up that promise. He, he was never wavering in his belief they could do it, and he was kind of upset with the people because they wouldn't do what God had promised. I'm not going to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Over in Joshua chapter 14, here's what Caleb says. I was 40 then. That's when they entered and nobody would go in. I was 40 then. I'm 85 now. Now, I've got lots of friends in this room that are probably in your 80s. Think about what Caleb's saying here. I'm 85 now, but I'm still as strong as I was back then when I was 40, when we explored the promised land. Give me, they were dividing up the property, give me that hill country that God promised, and then here's the key. With the Lord's help, I will drive out those giants. He said, in other words, it's been 45 years, I've never forgot, I'm going to do it. You give me that land and I'll take care of it because God's going to help me because he told us he would do it the first time and you guys didn't listen. Let's read a few verses on screen. Joshua 14, we'll start on that one. More about this Arba guy. So Joshua, he's going to bless Caleb, it says, the son of Japunah, and he gave him Hebron, or this Kiriath Arba, as his inheritance, just like he asked in the verses I just read. Then verse 15, it says, Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites, those giants that made everybody look like a grasshopper. Next chapter, 15. Joshua gave Caleb a portion in Judah. Look what he gave him, Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. Then it tells us Arba was the father of Anak. Anak was the father of the Anakite. That's where we get the name. But Hebron, look what happens, though. He drove out the three Anakites, the three main leaders, which were the sons of Anak. And they were Shishai, Amon, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. So he completes the mission. But it's 45 years later. They could have done it right then and there, but they were afraid. The, the Israelite people as a whole, all except for Caleb and Joshua, were fearful. But here's the thing. We have to understand. Fear is okay. It's okay to be afraid. It keeps us safe sometimes. Because if we're no fear at all, usually you're reckless. A lot of people are reckless on YouTube videos right now. You'll see them make horrible mistakes and, you know, spills. Fear is a good thing. It protects us. But on the other hand, it can't overcome us. And I think it overcame those Israelites. They became paralyzed with fear, which brings up our first main point if you're taking notes tonight. Sometimes taking risks for God can be scary. And if we're honest, it is scary to step out in faith even when we clearly know God told us to do something. You ever felt that, that you know that you know that you know that God told you to do something, but you were just afraid to step out? But our fear can't override our faith. That's the real point. Taking risks can be scary, but our fear can't override our faith. It didn't override Caleb's. That's why he just said all those things we just read about. He was like, come on, guys. God said we could do this. What's wrong with you? But everybody else, their, their fear overrid their faith, and they kind of didn't really trust God to protect them. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So Abraham, he's, he's mourning Sarah. Here we go, some more continuation of that. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife, and he spoke to the Hittites, the people that owned that land where, where they were. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you, Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. And he really means my dead wife, Sarah. 
And if we go back in Genesis, Abraham knew this area very well. If you remember, he came over from Ur and he ended up at Shechem. Hebron is not very far from Shechem. We'll see that in a little while on the map. He lived there numerous times. Remember, he would wander off. Sometimes I made the case one night that he kind of got ahead of God and went places he shouldn't, like Egypt. But he came back to this area pretty regularly. And he also built an altar there. So I think it was probably, in, in his mind, a very special place. That's why he's asking, sell me this field, sell me this property. Let me read you a verse that will kind of remind you. Back in Genesis 13, which has been a while, by the way, because we're in 23, here, here's what it says about Abram. He was still Abram back then. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. There is where he built an altar to the Lord. So he remembered that altar. That's, I think, why he probably wants this field. They didn't have a temple yet. That was likely, in his mind, his temple. This altar he had built to sacrifice and worship the Lord, he wants his wife buried near what he sees as a special place, maybe even his temple, possibly. So all this is happening at Kiriath Arba, or Hebron, but there's a lot of more things that happen. I'll put them on screen because even I'll forget if I don't look at them. Let's look at a few. This area, this Kiriath Arba, is where Abraham's name was changed. That's in Genesis 17, as you can see. Remember the story where God and the two angels shows up? They're going towards Sodom and Gomorrah, but then Abraham realizes one of them that I made the case that night is pre-incarnate Jesus. That happened right here at Hebron, Kiriath Arba. Isaac and Jacob later grow up. Their whole childhood is spent in this kind of little small area. And we all know, we're not going to get to it in Genesis, but we know the story, right? Joseph and his coat of many colors and his father, remember, sent him, go find your brothers, they're herding sheep. He sends him from Hebron to go find his brothers, ends up in a pit, goes to Egypt, you know the rest of the story. That's all stuff that happened, but there's more. There's a couple more coming up. I don't think it would all fit on one screen. This is where the elders of Israel first anoint King David. And that's over in 2 Samuel, because he didn't go to Jerusalem until later, and it's up on the screen. He reigned there seven and a half years in Hebron. That was the first capital pre-Jerusalem. So it's a special area, special city. It's still there. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So all that is kind of history of what happened at this Kiriath Arba or Hebron. Let's get back to our text, verse 5. He's asked to buy some property. Let's see their answer. The Hittites, verse 5, replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. So he was respected. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. So Abraham, remember in that last verse, he called himself a foreigner. They're showing him respect and calling him a mighty prince. So they recognize something different about Abraham. I believe it's because they can see that he knows God. They can see something different about him. My question for myself and for you, do, do people around you see that in you? Do they see that you know God? They should. But let's talk about these Hittites for a second or two. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 10. And we'll look at some lineage of the, these Hittites. Because sometimes there's so many ites and so many tribes we forget about who they all are and where they came from. So we need to hit rewind and go back to 10. 
Genesis 10, and I picked three or four verses. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. Remember, they all came off the ark, who themselves had sons after the flood. Verse 6 is going to list his sons, or the, excuse me, Ham's sons. Ham's sons were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So the Canaanites are all descended out of Canaan's lineage. In verse 15, it's going to tell us a lot of who these tribes were, because apparently he had lots of sons and had lots of other nations. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, but also of the Hittites, the ones we're talking about, the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. All the ites. Yeah, so I knew Bill would be impressed by that. You can rattle them all off without a pause. Um, but I almost ran out of breath. Did you hear it at the end? I almost got out of breath. I better be careful with those ites. They're not good. All these ites, but they're descended from Noah's lineage. So even though they're kind of a thorn Israel side, a lot of them, God protects some of them too as they travel through that land. Some of them they get rid of and kind of kick out of the property. Some of them that even don't show very much favor to Israel, God never tells them to destroy. But these Hittites are the ones that came out of that lineage we just looked at. That's who the ones right now Abraham is talking to. See, it's like a history lesson tonight. So, what does that really mean or matter? Well, in a way, you've got to see it as the big picture. This just sort of proves, even though the Hittites are occupying it at the moment, they're a pagan nation, they're still descended off the ark. These are God's people, so they might have, at the moment Abraham's asking these questions, sell me some property, they're still descendants of Noah. They're God's people. And my real point is, God's people have always had this promised land. Sometimes Canaanite nations or other pagan nations would be occupying it, but even though they had rebelled and turned away from the Lord and kind of done the wrong thing, they were still genetically descendants of Noah. They were God's people. So the land itself has always belonged to God's people. It still belongs to God's people. That's why Israel is existence today. God said in other scriptures, and we've looked at them before in here on Wednesday night, if you bless Israel, I'll bless you. If you don't bless Israel, I'm done with you. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's more or less what it says. So we have to be sure we don't, you know, think like the world sometime and say, well, maybe Israel doesn't belong there. Maybe we should look into that. Maybe we should change our mind. No, this is God's land. And he gave it to his people. It's still theirs. They have a right to it. And if we don't get on board with that idea, God says, I won't bless you. So it, it's in our best interest to bless Israel as a nation, as a people, for us to show them favor. And really what we really want to do is pray that they would know Jesus. Because we all know a lot of them don't believe he's the Messiah even to this day. They will someday, but for a lot of them it might be too late. We want them to believe now while they're still alive here on earth, just like we had to. Next verse, verse 7. So let's see what happens after they said, we'll, we'll give you the best plot we have. Verse 7, it says, Abraham rose, he bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites, and then he said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dad, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf. But we'll see in a minute, he's sitting right there. He's just campaigning to the larger group. Intercede with Ephron for me. 
So he will sell me, he's going to tell us why in verse 9, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. We don't really care much about what he's asking as much as we really should care. Look how he's behaving. He's treating these sort of pagan people with gentleness, respect, kindness. He's showing them kind of favor. He's bowing to them. And he's interacting in an easygoing, pleasant manner. They called him a great prince because, you know, we know Abraham has eventually a lot of possessions. I'm not sure if he does yet. But he's acting like a role model of what a Christ follower should look like. He's showing kindness, gentleness, and respect to people that he clearly knows are kind of pagan nations. Which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. People notice us, me, you. We may not be Abraham, but they notice us. They notice Christ followers. If people know you go to church and you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus... Trust me, you're being watched. You may not know it. They're watching how do you respond to a difficult situation. They're watching if you treat people gently, kindly, respectfully like Abraham is doing. Because if we don't, our point is if I would finish it, if we don't represent Jesus well, why in the world would they want to be here at church with us? If they think we're a bunch of hypocrites, who wants to come hang out with hypocrites? We don't, do we? I don't, I'll tell you that much. Why would people want to hang out with us if they think, in other words, if our walk is not matching our talk, why would people listen and come if we invite them even to praise night? You know? We have to be an excellent role model and represent Christ well. Or we shouldn't be surprised if nobody comes when we ask them. In other words, it's up to us to represent God as best we can. Now, we're going to mess up. We're sinners. We're going to fail. We're going to always do the right thing. But when we do maybe raise our voice or say something wrong, we've got to be quick to apologize, quick to make amends, quick to fix it. Don't hold grudges, no unforgiveness, things like that. All of those things, I could go on and on and speak on this all night, by the way, but I won't. We have to make God look good and make people want to have what we have by acting better than the world around us does. That makes sense? Good, so we can move on. Verse 10, Ephron the Hittite, look, remember I told you, he's sitting among his people. He's right there. This is all kind of context of what they would do to negotiate. We'll get to that in a second. He's sitting among his people, so he replies, because remember, Abraham had indirectly addressed the people saying, campaign with Ephron for me. He heard it. He replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city, no, my Lord, listen to me. I've heard your request. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. In other words, all these witnesses bury your dead. Bury your dead wife. So as you read this story, and you know, I've read this story numerous times. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I really studied, like, what in the world are they doing here? You're like, why are they talking third person? Why are they trying to give each other feels? And, and it's all context. This is the culture of this region. And by the way, they still do it very similar even right now. Here's the way it would work. There was an expected behavior. Even though it's not written, it's expected. First, and 
Ephron just did this. He offers to give you this thing you're asking for as a free, just take it, it's a gift. I just give it to you. But he really knows you're not going to accept it because that would be a huge cultural no-no to say, okay, give it to me. They would probably ostracize you from their you know, leader group if you did that. So they're pretty confident this offer is not going to be accepted. So then when the next guy, who's going to be Abraham, will come back in a second, he'll say, no, no, you're not going to give it to me. Give us a price. Then the seller would set what he claims is a very modest price, but in reality, it's a sky-high price. And it's kind of like a game. They're playing a game in a way. It's like a bargaining game. Anybody like to go bargain and shop and kind of haggle and go to the flea market and do things like that? They're haggling. There was a formula, though, and that's what all these verses are describing. We're just not really told that. And really, this high price, that's supposed to be the starting point where the true haggle starts. So the the, the so-called giver throws out this artificially high price, then the next guy comes up, oh, no, no, that's way too high, and then he lowballs you, you know, just like you see on TV on some of those shopping channels. But let's look and see if Abraham does that. Let me read a few more verses. Verse 12. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, these Hittites, and he said to Ephron in everyone's hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. There's no price been set yet. He's kind of right now asking for a price, that artificially high price. Ephron answered to Abraham, listen to me, my Lord. This land is worth 400 shekels. And that's about 10 pounds, by the way. It's worth 10 pounds of silver, which would have been a lot of money back in those days. But then he says, what is that between me and you? What is that between friends like us? Just take it and bury your dead. They're playing the game again. They're bargaining. It's a method. So now let's see if Abraham does his part. Because at this point, he should come back with a low ball offer. Verse 16. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms. In other words, he's going to pay the whole price. He weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. No bargaining, no haggle, full price. Why does he do that? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, but as you've probably seen before on Wednesday night, I think I have an opinion about that. What would a Wednesday be without a Dave opinion? Whether it's mine or Pastor Dave Folkert's, on Wednesday, you're likely to get a Dave opinion pretty regular. Then you can make your own mind up what you think. That's the beauty of it, because it's just my opinion, which in reality means nothing. But it's not in Scripture clear, you know, why he's doing this, but here's what I think. We clearly know that Abraham is a godly man. He's behaving in a godly manner. So I think he's going to pay this full price because he's not really focused on his money. He has money, but it's not the boss of his life. It's not controlling his decisions. He knows he's overpaying. He doesn't care. What he cares about is getting that property that he really wants for his wife. He doesn't really care what it's going to cost. So that's part of the reason, I think, that he's a godly man. He's not focused on his money or his stuff. But also, I believe, it ties into what I said earlier about us representing God well. I think he wants to show them that he's different. He's not going to bargain. He's not going to do what maybe they would do. He's going to let them have the full price and kind of, in a way, say, I've got the money. I'm going to pay it forward and give it to you. 
I've been blessed by God. I'm going to bless you with what you want, which is this high price. So I think it's a two-part reason, but that's just me. He's a godly man, doesn't care about his money, and he wants to make God look good. Because I think he's spiritually mature. We've seen all these stories where he's made mistake after mistake. But last week when Dave taught, he talked about how he started having the right kind of faith because he was going to sacrifice Isaac. We'll see him behaving a lot better tonight than he has in, say, five or six chapters ago. Let's read a few more verses. Let's see the result. Verse 17. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, that's where the big trees were, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field were deeded, deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all these Hittite witnesses who had come to the gate of the city. So now let's connect the two stories that we already know. It's the promised land. God had promised it to his people. But in a way, it was a verbal promise between the Lord and his kind of champion, Abraham. The Hittites never heard that promise. So God promised the land. He knew, Abraham knew that was the promise. But now God has arranged for Abraham to buy property with a deed and a title to it. He has, he has the paper to go with his promise now. So he really has a promise of ownership from the Lord, which is better, by the way. But he has a paper title, like some of you do, to your property. So he's got really two reasons it's his, mainly because God promised it, but secondarily, he's now bought it. He owns literally a plot of land in the promised land on paper. So what's he going to do with it? Verse 19. After he, afterward, which is after he bought it, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave at the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. So this is a famous site, this cave of Machpelah. You'll see it mentioned other times in the Bible. It's also known, by the way, as another name. It's called the Tomb of the Patriarchs. And really, it's the tomb of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. In other words, the husbands and the wives. And here's what you may not know, because I didn't know this one myself until I was studying. It's the second most holy site in all of Israel. It's only number two to the Temple Mount. Temple Mount is number one. Some of you in this room tonight are going to see Israel. You'll see the Temple Mount when you go. This site, this field in this cave or number two to the Jewish people in importance. And here's why. Because they put a lot of importance on who's in there. We already know from our text Sarah's in there, but I'm not going to cheat and tell you anything you don't already know. Abraham will end up in there himself. I already told you Isaac ends up there, but not just Isaac. Isaac and his wife Rebecca both get buried in there. Jacob and his wife Leah, Leah's in there too. The only one of his wives that's not, poor Rachel died in childbirth, so she died somewhere near Bethlehem, so she's not in this cave. So there's three patriarchs, three matriarchs that Scripture mentions that are in this cave. But as I was studying and reading this, I'm thinking to myself, what about now? You ever wonder that? Like, what about now? What is there right now? Well, modern-day Hebron, you can go home and Google map it. It's a city in the Palestinian territory. It's all God's country, but right now the Jews have allowed the Palestinian people part of the territory. 
So, and I even Googled the population because I was curious. About 200,000 Palestinians live there, but about only 700 Jewish settlers because it's pretty dangerous. This is Palestinian territory. But the actual cave where these six people are buried, you can't go to the cave. It's there, but you can't see it. And the reason is, it's also, remember, I'll tie some lessons together. Who else values Abraham as their founding religious father? It's the Muslim race. I mean, the Muslim people, excuse me, not the race, the religion, the Muslim religion. They see him as their patriarch also. So they built a giant mosque on top of it. Because if you go back to the Crusades, it, remember it kept changing hands. England would go do a crusade. They would gain control. They would get kicked off. There was a guy named Saladin. He ends up controlling the area. During Saladin's rule, they built a giant mosque over this site. So it's still there. Now, as Gentiles, here's the good news. I know there's a couple of Jewish people in the room. Gentiles can visit. Jews can too, but only a certain couple of days of the year. But either way, you can't really see anything because the cave is way down beneath the building. Now I'm going on a rabbit trail. You ready for a little rabbit trail? Because you got to hear this one. Th this one's interesting, to me anyway. We'll see if you like it. Remember, I told you it's history night. Here's what Jewish tradition says. Let's be clear, though. It's not in the Bible. It's not inspired. It's a, kind of like a myth mythological fable, is how I would put it. And I think it sounds pretty mythologi uh, mythological to me. You can make your own mind up in a second. Here's what the Jewish people believe. They have like a, a oral history story about this exact site. They say while Abraham was living in Hebron, and it's going to tie into a story we just taught a few Wednesdays ago, Remember when those three visitors, there were two angels and Jesus? What the Jewish people believe is as those three people are there, the two angels and God, which would be Jesus, that Abraham was going to feed them a calf. He was going to kill a calf and make a feast for them, his visitors. And part of that story is in our Bible about he, he gets a meal ready. But they believe, here's the part that they kind of run with, the calf got away, he escaped, Abraham chases it, can't find it. He searches. He stumbles upon this exact cave. So he's, you know, nobody's in there because Sarah hadn't died yet. And while he's in there, he finds the graves of Adam and Eve. What? I heard that. Yes. See? <laughs> Mythological? Maybe. So they believe Adam and Eve are in there. And they call this area the city of four because that makes now four patriarchs, four matriarchs, but it's all just hearsay. Um, so based on that thought, they run a little further and say, then that's got to be the site of the Garden of Eden. Because if an Adam and Eve are in there and he found them, found their graves, that makes that cave, that site, the Garden of Eden. No proof. Not sure I buy that one, but once again, you can get your own opinion on this one. But here's my real question. We do know there's three patriarchs and three matriarchs in there. You can leave Adam and Eve out of the picture. Does it really matter that those six are in there? Does it really matter? Is it important that that's a historical shrine that's super important? We have to go visit because of the dead people in there. Well, in a similar way, they asked Jesus about that one time. And let's look at some verses. Let's look at his answer. Is that Because I tied these verses to this site in a way. It's in Matthew. It's on the screen for us all. 
they were kind of arguing about the resurrection of the dead, but he ties it to this story in a way. He says, have you not read what God, he's talking to the Pharisees, this is Jesus, have you not read what God said to you? I am, two important words by the way, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then look what he says after that. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Living God. But think about what he's saying, though, about Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham. He says, I am their God, not I was their God. In other words, what he's really saying, if you think about it, they're not in that cave. Their bones might be in there, they're up here in heaven with me. They're still alive is what Jesus is really saying. So that should, in a, in a way, I think anyway, give us great hope. Because death is not the end. It's, it's just not. But he's quoting, let me read the verse. I didn't put it on the screen. Let me, let me read the verse he's really quoting. Jesus is quoting Exodus 3.6. You can turn to it later when you get home if you want. And really, he's quoting God as God spoke to Moses. Moses is who was told that. Jesus is just quoting it to the Pharisees. Here's what Exodus 3, 6 says. It's almost verbatim. He says, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, at this news, it says in Exodus 3, 6, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It just kind of blew Moses' mind to hear that. They all focused on death and shrines and caves and tombs. God is saying, I am still their God. It's not past tense. It's not was. I was, I was their God. I am their God. Which brings up our next main point if you're taking notes. And this is a big one in my mind. Because as we all get older, we start thinking about our own death, don't we? Look what it says on screen. Death is an end. It's an end, but it's not the end. It's not the end of us. I would make the case our real life only starts at our death. That's the start of life, not the end of it. Real life begins at the moment of your death and my death. Your bones might be in the ground or in a cave like these guys, but that's not where you are. You have that new, Scripture says, that new spiritual body that's the best body you've ever had, ever. No pain, no suffering, no old age, no needing glasses, no needing hearing aids, none of that. The best body you ever had, and it's not lying in some old dirty cave. You're with Jesus. So we don't need to worry about going to see this cave, do we? Who cares if there's a mosque on top of it? Those guys aren't really in there. Only their bones are. Amen. Next chapter. That finishes up 23. We're going to jump to 24 and do just about 9 or 10 verses. And then we'll pick the rest of 24 up next week after praise night. Because next week, remember, is praise night. So the following week, we'll finish 24. Because Abraham is getting old now. It tells us in our first verse of 24, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Well, as you think about all the ways he was blessed, let's just think about those. 
Remember, God called him out of that land of Ur that we'll see in a second. So he, he's, he's got salvation. That's his first blessing. And God said, I'll give you a land. Go to the land I'll show you. And I'll, I'll make you the father of people and many nations, as it's called later. So he has salvation, a land, people, and also Isaac, a son, a biological son from your wife, Sarah, even though you're both way too old to have kids, your own biological son. So he, he is blessed in every way. So look what he says in verse 2. He starts to think about his own mortality, I think. He says in verse 2, he said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, which is likely a lot like we talked about, put your hand under my thigh. Sounds weird, but I'll explain it in a second. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not, you will not, that's the key, not get a wife for my son from the daughters of these Canaanites among whom I am now living. Remember, he bought the field from the Hittites, but the land is the land of Canaan. Do not get a wife for my son out of this Canaanite pagan nation. So who is this servant? We don't exactly know, but I'll give you my theory. And why in the world is he saying, stick your hand under my thigh? Culture, context, that's why. This servant was mentioned a few chapters back. In chapter 15, remember, he, he was kind of complaining to God when we talked about he didn't have a whole lot of faith. And he said, my servant Eliezer is going to inherit everything I own. He's just my servant, but he's my only you know, guy to give it to. And God says, no, no, Eliezer will not be your heir. I will give you a son. Likely it's this same Eliezer, we think, but it's not really provable. So it's his main servant, whoever it is. But then that brings up question two, why is he wanting his hand under his thigh? Well, if you think about it, let me connect a few chapters ago. Remember the, the week I talk about circumcision? That was a covenant. What he's telling him now, put your hand, I don't want to be too graphic, near my covenant. It's in the same general area. And what he's really saying is, this agreement I want you to agree to, it's almost, not quite, but it's almost important as my covenant with the Lord of circumcision. You're in the same neighborhood. And that's where I'll leave it. It's a serious request. And see, we kind of miss that. To us, it just sounds weird. And I had to study a lot to figure this out, believe me. But I think, once again, Abraham is realizing he's getting very old. Our verse just told us that. He sees his own mortality. He sees maybe his life is going to end. Who knows when? In these days, you know, life was dangerous. He's, in a way, making this like his oral will. Whatever you do, do not let my son marry this Canaanite people. And he's going to give me more instructions. Look, look at verse 4. But you, you, I think is Eliezer, will go to my country, in other words, where I came from, Ur, and my own relatives, and get a wife for my son Isaac. Go back to my country, where I was from, Ur of Chaldea. And by the way, um, Chaldea doesn't always ring a bell, but you know a Chaldean in Scripture. You ever heard the name Nebuchadnezzar? Of course you have. That's Remember the Exodus and Babylon? It's really Nebuchadnezzar II, or the second Nebuchadnezzar, that does all that. He's the one that destroyed Judah, hauled the people off to captivity, wrecked the temple, took the whole nation captive. That's a Chaldean. He's really a Chaldean that does all that. He, he takes them to Babylon, but he is a Chaldean. It's the region. Let's look at a map. Remember I promised you a map? 
I've been holding out on you. Here it is. We saw this, I think, on week one or two, maybe, if you remember, because we can kind of refresh our memory. Way down on the bottom right, there's Ur, Babylonia. That's where he started. And remember, he, God called him out of that area. He goes all the way, stopped in Haran too long. God never told him there to do that. He also told him, leave your people. He ends up taking his family, took a lot. That's a big mistake. But he ends up down, follow that red line. Look where he ends up. He goes to Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Look what's right below Shechem. Hebron, where we are tonight. So now there in Hebron, right below Shechem, where he originally started, he's only gone about that far on the map if you think about it, but he's telling this Eliezer, his servant, go way back and track all those steps backwards. Go back to Ur and get a wife for my son out of my relatives. That's what he's asking. And that's a long journey, but he wants whatever he, he says, do not get a wife out of these Canaanite nations. Let's read a few more verses, then I'll tell us why I think he's saying this. Um, verse 5 and 6. The servant now, it's a long way, so he's already coming up with like a what if. The servant asked him, what if the woman, in other words, if I find a woman, what if she's unwilling? What if she's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back over there to the country you're from? In other words, if she says no, should I come back and get your son and then go back again? Look what Abraham's answer is. Make sure, verse 6, whatever you do, make sure you do not take my son back there. Think about the story. Abraham was a pagan. We know that. It's a pagan area. But they're clearly somehow better than the Canaanites he's seeing now because the Canaanites had false gods. They were killing you know, babies and doing horrible stuff. They were pagans and doing really horrific things. At least he knew when he grew up, he didn't see that kind of stuff. So in his mind, it's a way better place than where he's living now. And what he's really saying, and as a parent or grandparent, I think you could appreciate this one, don't expose my son to that lifestyle. Go get her and bring, even though it's better than the Canaanites, I don't want him going over there. Who knows what he might see or fall into. Get a lady, bring her back to where we are, where this is all, you know, a better place and a better area. Because even though they're in a pagan area, he could protect him on his property and his now field that he's bought. He's really saying, don't let my son be corrupted by the world all around us. That's what he's really saying. Which is what I meant by as a parent or grandparent, you can probably appreciate that one. Verse 7, well, I'm going to keep reading. The Lord, the God of heaven, now this is Abraham's answer. What if she won't come back? The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land, he will send his angel. Now look at his faith. He, God, will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son. He has faith now. He's, he's saying, don't worry. What he's really saying, don't worry. God's got this. Look where Abraham's come now. Last week, he almost sacrificed Isaac. This week, he's saying, God's got it all figured out. You just do what I'm asking. God's going to go before you and take care of it. He will send an angel to make sure she comes back. Now, this next verse, I think verse 8, I think he's saying this one to give the servant, which I believe is Eliezer, almost like a little comfort about the what if. 
because he's not going to ignore the what if question. He says, if the woman is unwilling, but he already told us he doesn't believe she will be. But if she's unwilling, in other words, if you're right, if she's the one to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath. You won't have to do what I'm asking. But whatever you do, he follows that up with, only do not take my son back there. So the servant is going to now swear that he's told him what he wants to do. He's given the requirements. He wants to swear an oath under his thigh. Verse 9, he's going to do it. Verse 9, so the servant, Eliezer, put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and he swore an oath to him concerning the matter. He's going to honor their request. And by the way, there's many other verses. I just picked two. We're going to look at one Old Testament, one New Testament that say exactly the same thing. Do not intermarry with these pagan nations. Deuteronomy 7. Don't intermarry with them. This is after Abraham, of course, but now God has given specific, I think God has sort of spoken to Abraham, put it on his heart, the Holy Spirit had spoken maybe, give him that inner peace, that feeling. In Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a real rule. Do not intermarry with them. And it tells us why. Don't give your daughters or sons to take their daughters for your sons. Verse 4, they're going to turn your children away from God. They're going to turn your children away from me, and you'll start serving the Canaanite gods, the ones that are sacrificing children in the hot statue arms. So that was God's mandate. Then look at New Testament.